Welcome to episode 9 of Motion and Meaning, a little podcast about motion design for digital designers. I'm Val Head. And I'm Kenneth Bowles. Um, in, the, in the last episode, uh, we discussed accessibility as it related to motion. And one of the things we talked about was how to make sure your animations were designed in as universal a manner as possible. Um, I think kind of this has been a bit of a theme through the series that we've talked quite a lot about techniques and tools. But uh, finally now in episode nine, I think we're going to try and address an, an area that maybe we've overlooked rather, which is workflow. Mm. Um, talking about the process of actually getting good motion design shipped and delivered, you know, into an end product. So working with your colleagues, maybe some of whom are kind of, um, you know, recalcitrant to do these kind of things who just don't have experience or, or kind of wondering why you're trying to bring this to the table and trying to work yeah. with them and actually get it in the, in the, in the product itself that you're working on. Um, so we thought the way we'd tackle it today is kind of like a question and answer thing. We've got four questions that have come up from conversations we'd have with, we've had with people out there in the field trying to do this or people who've listened to the podcast and who've asked us things. Um, and so we'll sort of ask each other these questions and hopefully that'll be um, you know relatively illuminating and interesting. Yeah. But I guess we'll find out by doing it as well, right? Hopefully we'll even actually answer them. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'll crack on with the first question then, which... Um, you know, this this comes up a lot, and actually it's kind of your classic um, conference talk question. Someone sort of sticks their hands up and they sort of go, oh, this is all very, very well and good, but my mm. team would never go for it, right? <laughs> um, how do I convince my team to spend the extra time doing it your way? Um, so Val, I guess over to you. I mean, do you want to yeah. take a stab at that? I've definitely gotten this question after conference talks. <laughs> um, usually maybe phrased a little bit like, more um, timidly of like, mm -hmm. this is great, but seriously, my boss will never go for it. Right. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's a situation a lot of designers find themselves in because, you know, your boss and the rest of your team isn't necessarily out reading the same things you are or just not necessarily interested in the same things you are. Mm -hmm. And that's totally yeah. fine. Um, I think a really good way or the way I usually suggest people attack it is kind of taking the like slow, stealthy approach to it. And, you know, just start, you know, at your meetings or stand-ups or whatever, when you talk to your colleagues, be like, hey, so I saw this thing. Maybe it's like a case study. Um, you know, like I know Campaign Monitor's done a pretty interesting case study on how animations change their email builder. Stripe's done a pretty um, detailed one on how they change their checkout process. Hmm. You know, kind of do that and be like, oh, hey, did you notice that Stripe does this, this, and this? And here's why they did it. We like to do that stuff with our product, too. Maybe we want to take the same approach. Um, and kind of just doing that in little pieces at a time, calling attention to where other products or other sites have done motion very mm. well and are using it in a way you would like to use it in your product. And just, you know, subtly point that out here and there. Um, maybe even go as far as like trying to design some in. Um, if you're kind of doing some exploratory stuff, be like, hey, I tried it this way. Um, mm -hmm. But that can, you know, kind of working your way up to that. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't quickly change people's minds, but I feel like it's a good approach for making them think it was their idea. Yeah. I think there are, there are a couple of things in there that, that, that appeal to me. Um, one is, you know, certainly in some companies, you can appeal to a kind of competitive instinct. Mm. Um, it's not something I recommend all the time. Um, but, you know, sometimes if a company's motivated that way, you can say, well, hey, you know, our competitors are starting to do this stuff. We've got to start to, you know, get involved because the benefits in terms of experience and so on are going to be good. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can use that as a bit of a driver. But the problem with that, I think, is it becomes a bit kind of negative. You end up just trying to yeah. get motivated to copy their interaction design or their motion design. 
And you want to do it for for yourself, not yeah. just because they are. But it is a good it is a good little it's a good I mean it's a good hook. Yeah, it's kind of a good artificial motivator. If you need that kind of kickstart, then then that'll do it. I really like what you say about kind of doing it undercover as well. Um, this is something that I've I've always had um, you know, strong belief in is kind of essentially just doing it anyway mm. without permission. Uh, and if anyone has been sort of following me for a little while, they'll know that I actually wrote a book to cover user experience, which is essentially about how to bring that mindset to do user experience work without actually having permission to do so. Yeah. So that totally appeals to me. The idea of just saying, well, you know, we're just going to sneak a bit in and, you know, get these small victories and eventually they'll mount up without, you know, having to do a big pitch and proposal saying, everyone, it's time to turn our attention to animation and to yeah. motion design. Just start drip feeding it into work. And yeah, you might make some pretty good progress, right? Yeah. And I guess you, you want to avoid that whole big reveal thing. Like if you went yeah. like over the weekend, redesigned your entire product with motion and then Monday you come in and you're like, hey, everyone, <laughs> that's just like, that's, that's, that could, that could be very disastrous. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that, that, that's, that's a good, that's a good contrast there. Mm. Um, one of the things I, yeah, I think about this, it, it, one of the things I think that has surprised me when I've done this previously is actually a lot of the time people don't need selling on it once they see it. Mm, yeah. You know, if you if you start to talk about motion without showing the motion, then yes, you're going to have some problems. But if you actually start putting in prototypes, you start just demoing, here's how something might work, a lot of the time that's actually pretty compelling in and of itself. You know, I find particularly for engineers... Um, <laughs> Less so when they actually have to think about, well, oh God, how are we going to build this? <laughs> but, you know, they see it and they go, oh, oh, that's quite exciting. And I actually sort of see eyes yeah. light up before they start realizing, oh, hang on, this is extra work. <laughs> and it is, if you can show it and, you know, then they can form their own opinions of it, right? They're not yeah. just like, oh, I should listen to Kenneth because he says we should do this. They're like, I see that and I like it too. Yes. Yes. So it kind of relates actually to some of the stuff we've said in earlier episodes, mm -hmm. right? For me, the main cause of uh, things that designers think are valuable, the main cause of those not shipping is mm. when the rest of the team thinks they're kind of arbitrary and they don't see why they're put in. They think it's just designers faffing around <laughs> doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it comes down to pretty much everything we've talked about, making sure everything is there for a purpose. And then that purpose you can explain, you know, when, when, you, are, when you do have people in critique sessions or in... Um, you know, sprint planning or something like that, saying, well, why do we even need this? You have an answer for it. Now, either it improves the user's mental model of what's happening, it better communicates the function of the product, it adds some brand personality, whatever it is. Um, obviously, to which, you know, I'd refer you to all the previous <laughs> glorious episodes of the of the podcast. Um, but yeah. once you have that in place, that really strengthens your case. Yeah, being able to say why as opposed to just like, because I want to or because it looks good. Um mm. That's kind of like the answer they expect from designers, right? It's like, oh, because it looks good. And that doesn't, rarely goes very far, really. I mean, sometimes, actually, frequently, that really, that actually is the true answer. But you still need to find <laughs> a way. Just don't say it is. <laughs> you essentially, you need a way to say it, um, you know, that sounds slightly more meaningful and that has a bit more content to it. Yeah. Um, you know, there are always ways to do that. And, you, and you want you know both, right? Like, you want it to have a reason for being there. And you do want it to look good. You're not going to be like, well, it's really ugly, but it works. Like, that's not <laughs> the argument you want to make as a designer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> unless that's, like, where you're... Yeah, anyways, unless that's your whole concept. But that's a different yeah. story. There's one angle on this as well, which I, I just want to talk about, which is mm -hmm. um, the MVP. Mm -hmm. I've seen very few MVPs that have good motion. It's, it's something... MVP meaning minimal vi minimum viable product? 
Yes, sorry. Okay. Um, MVP has a minimum, minimum viable product. Just making sure we weren't talking baseball or something. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know pretty much zip about baseball. Um, much more of a cricket guy. So, yeah, so an MVP and motion design can be quite tricky to pair because, you know, is motion ever minimum? Um, mm. Perhaps not. This is this is essentially just the same problem as we have with any kind of high finesse interaction designer, user experience designer, and MVP. And for me, it's generally this problem comes up when people have a uh, a poor conception of what an MVP actually means. What it should be is a full slice of the cake, not the bottom layer of the cake. You know, if you're doing a sponge, <laughs> it's not just all of the sponge. Yeah, it's a small bit of sponge, a small bit of filling, a small bit of icing, and some decoration. Just a little bit of it. I like that we keep going for dessert metaphors in this, this podcast. <laughs> I think we should keep it up. <laughs> yeah. It's a good one, though. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it's it's about trying to just shift the perception and shift the discussion of what an MVP is meant to do. It should mm. be a full stack experience. God, that's a horrible phrase, but it should be. <laughs> it should contain a bit of everything. Some of, you know, the, the, the core functionality and the tasty stuff on top. So, again, if, you, if you're successful in that conversation, I think there is scope for getting it in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the rest of the team needs to want it and needs to see the value of it. So that refers back to what we said you know, yeah, uh, throughout yeah. the series. That reminds me of an article I read a while ago that I'm hoping I'm remembering the title correctly. But it was talking about minimum viable delight and mm-hmm. basically just the idea of if you're going to put together a minimal product, it needs to have like kind of like what you said. It needs to have the thing that's going to make it actually not necessarily they use delight because, you know, delight, but the thing that's going to mm-hmm. make it um pleasurable to use still has to be in there and if mm-hmm. there's none of that why'd you bother yeah yeah absolutely right all right so let's go on to question two which is kind mm. of similar but a little bit more i don't know i guess detailed um which is how to convince your client or team that animation doesn't just mean using like parallax scroll jacking effects that you see everywhere else and that they should be looking to use animation in more meaningful ways that actually fit your product versus following a trend Mm. Is this is this from the, from the perspective of like working with um, client teams? You know, working as a consultant outside the client team, and then um, and then them saying, "Hey, we we saw something cool in the New York Times, or mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is, where they did this scroll jacky thing, and we want something similar." Is that the kind of angle? Yeah, when I've gotten this question, it's been from that kind of yeah. angle of like, "Hey, the client really likes this," or there's definitely a disconnect of who's you know, the designers and the people that own the product are coming from two different places. Mm, I see. Um, I kind of take a classic consulting viewpoint on that, which is I want to understand why they're, why they're saying mm-hmm. that. What's the motivation uh, behind that question? Is it that they genuinely think it's the best thing for the product or is it because they want to have on the resume that they shipped something kind of glamorous and, <laughs> um, you know, in inverted commas, groundbreaking and so on. Yeah. And I, I suspect it's it's probably both, but probably with more of the latter than the former. Mm-hmm. I would try and drill down and say, okay, well, what specifically was it about that presentation, you know, that that site or that product or whatever, that you thought was really effective? How did it solve problems for users? Okay, great. We now know that. How can we take that and make it our own? And without just blindly copying these these techniques that may or may not be appropriate. I mean, there is a place for scroll jacking yeah. if it's done tastefully and, you know, uh, all, all these sorts of things. But it's really about understanding, you know, those, those motivations and they're looking for a, an alternative way to address them. For me also, prototyping, again, prototype, uh, you know, prototype different options and they will give you solutions or they will give you at least options that 
these client teams can say, yes, this is the kind of thing I'm looking for in terms of the sort of glitzy glamour and, you know, the excitement and things whizzing around. Or, no, I was thinking something even bigger or, you know, just just help to really translate those words into what that actually means on the screen. Yeah. Because it may be actually just what they mean is not the scroll jacky full, you know, sliding things uh, as, as you go down the page, but it might just be motion generally is actually what they're excited by, but they didn't really know how to phrase that. They've just yeah. seen this much more uh, full-featured version and think that's kind of what they're after. And that's kind of a situation you get into with other design things as well. You know, like um, if this client's like, this really needs to be this shade of blue. And you're like, why? Oh, yeah. mm. And then it turns out it's because like their competitor uses a blue and they like that blue or whatever. Like it's not necessarily yeah. because they really want that one. They just want to say they're businessy. And you're like, well, we could do that with a different blue or something. <laughs> you know, it's getting to that core meaning or that core motivation really helps. Um, and not for any fault of their own, but like, especially when it comes to dealing with clients, they aren't, they don't, shouldn't be expected to, you know, call things by the correct terminology if they haven't, if they're not design professionals, right? Like it's our job to figure out what they mean. They're not going to be like, I would like this to have more of, I don't know, follow through or something because they, they don't need to know what that means. That's our job. Yep, absolutely. And that's, yeah, as you said, that comes up all the time in in visual critique as well. Mm -hmm. It needs to pop more and so on. Eventually you learn how to translate (laughs) that. You know what that actually means in design language. Um, And this is just an extension. Yeah, because it's kind of funny how it still applies here. You're like, just because it's motion, it's the same deal. People have preferences that may or may not be based in useful things for what they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would I would kind of add some of the answer to the last question too, but you mm. kind of touched on it with the prototyping of just like finding mm. examples, maybe even if it's not full out prototypes, but if they're showing you these crazy parallax sites, like, or what was that McDonald's one that just came out recently? The McWhopper or whatever it was when it was like burger pieces flying all in. They're like, we want mm. this. And maybe you can find something more like, you know, that's has more um, meaningful motion, maybe not so much <laughs> motion flying in from everywhere, but, you know, motion for more of a purpose or maybe more subdued and being like, mm. hey, is maybe something like this. Like maybe you look at Stripe because we just talked about them, or maybe mm-hmm. you look at some apps, even like Tweetbot or something, and you're like, mm-hmm. what about this kind of motion? Does this feel like something your brand would do? And kind of pull it from that, kind of having them look at completely different examples and see if it's something that feels like it would fit their brand or their message. And maybe you'll find something of a happy medium, or like mm. you said, where they didn't actually mean that much motion. They just wanted something moving. Right. And that's another way to get, get to that. Um, kind of borrowed from uh, Dan Mall wrote a thing a while ago about doing sort of like um, these really quick design tests of like sticking your client's logo on someone else's site and being like, does this feel like it would fit you? Mm. Um, just these quick things. You don't have to build actual prototypes. You had a yeah. fancy name for it. Can't remember what it is, but I will remember and link it in the show notes because it's Great. an interesting read. <laughs> I haven't seen that McDonald's uh, site, but uh, it doesn't sound entirely tasteful. Let's put it that way. Uh, you have um, a lot of lettuce and tomatoes <laughs> flying in onto buns. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, well, I suppose I suppose, yeah, I suppose it I suppose it could work. <laughs> um, I really like what you're talking about around showing different products as well and just getting people to play with them and say, "Is this kind of what you meant, or mm. is this what you meant?" Because not only will that help give you an exa- uh, an idea of what they're looking for, but it also will help to, I suppose I'd say, to raise the motion literacy mm-hmm. of the client. You know, just exposure to more diff- more types of motion broadens the palette of the sort of conversation you can have. It, it broadens yeah. the language. You go, oh, we can have more of this kind of style with the, you know, the, the opacities and these fades and so on. And they have an example of what that is. They don't need to try and work it out from, from square one. Which yeah, it's a nice, nice sneaky way to get it in there. 
And I find when you do those examples near the beginning, they come up later in the project when they're like looking at what you've done. They're like, oh, hey, that reminds me of the way Tweetbot did this thing. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh, yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. You can have more meaningful conversations later on too, just by kind of laying that groundwork. It's it's really helpful. Nice. Okay. Uh, Let's move on to question three then. Um, So we want to talk a bit about um, documentation. So how best should we document uh, animation or motion design? What format should we try and present it in? Who should we document it for? And particularly how detailed should we get with it? I guess the first thing I always go to, since style guides are such a thing these days, in, in, as they should be, is that you know if you have a style guide, motion should be in your style guide. It should mm-hmm. be a section of your style guide. If you're documenting things like colors and type, you should also be documenting motion in, in kind of a similar way. Um, <clears throat> I think the format... Um, really whatever works best for your team. Like I think a lot of people end up doing it in some, at least for web stuff, end up doing it in some, you know, HTML sort of browser-based mm. format because that's what is easy to pass it around and is easy to use. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be, but I think that's, at least for the kind of work I do, I know that's the most useful. Um, and and you want to, it's kind of based on whoever the audience is, right? Like if you have, mm. if you work for a giant company and you're setting these rules for all the designers, and there's going to be like a hundred. I don't even know if that's a big company's worth of designers. A hundred mm-hmm. designers, biggish, <laughs> a million designers. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you you need to make you, you want to write it in a way that it's going to be understood by designers. If it's something that you want, you know, people who maybe aren't necessarily designers. You're in a smaller company, less than a hundred designers, maybe like four. I don't know. <laughs> My company size estimates are terrible, but you know, then you might have some people who it's maybe it's more developers will be reading this too. And then you want to mm-hmm. have it be something that would be meaningful for them that they can take from it easily, understand what it means and use it. So it's not like they read it and they're like, well, I don't get it. I'm just going to do my own thing anyways. You, know, yeah. you want to avoid that. Yeah. Um, and, and details kind of the same way as how far detailed you need to get for it to be usable. You know, I know some places or some people will do like a little example. That's maybe an animated GIF or video thing. And then there'll even be like a little code next to it of like, here's how to pull mm-hmm. it off in CSS. And, you know, if you are, if that document's going to be used by a lot of developers or maybe a lot of, um, even just people who are meant to implement it and can't spend a lot of time figuring out how to make that work in code, they can just copy and paste it and go. Mm. Um, but then there's other ones that, you know, don't go into quite so much detail and I think could be very useful for different audiences, especially people who are maybe, you know, more, more designing things versus actually implementing them. Um, so it really, I think it depends a lot on your company and your audience of who you're sharing it with and who it's for. Yeah, you're right. I think the, I think the audience definition is probably the key thing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise it won't get used. <laughs> then well, you wasted uh, your effort. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan theoretically of style guides in practice. Uh, they can be a bit more difficult than they mm. appear, I think. Mm-hmm. The most recently, you know, when I worked at Twitter, we had a style guide and, you know, as part of a project to help motion be part of that that was aimed at designers because yeah there were 100 designers or roughly that number good guess um, <laughs> and so you know it's important that everyone understands what t- twitter's motion standards were and what motion meant for the company and how it should happen across all products and so on and so it was written for designers it was written in, in sort of design language um you know you can be more precise that way mm-hmm. But, you know, we still had interested people from across the organization, from product and engineering, particularly sort of diving in um, and saying, hey, you know, show me more about what you've got. 
in terms of kind of the format, I think really the only the only thing is it can't be static, right? It, yeah. has, to, it has to be motion. It can't <laughs> a printed be, PDF. Yeah, you can't exactly. You can't have a PDF. You can't have a, a paper handout. It has to has to move. Um, I think we just use GIFs. Like we had yeah. a Confluence page, and on that, or maybe it wasn't. It was actually no. I think we sort of hand rolled HTML mm-hmm. if I remember rightly, and we just threw some GIFs in it, and yeah. it was. Um, uh, particularly good to have like do's and don'ts as well. Like animation works like this, but not like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about the material design guidelines quite a bit. They have exactly that, which is a really nice um, uh, kind of representative format for that. Yeah, yeah. It's good to show like the good example versus bad example, just to give like a yeah. range of, because usually, if, especially if you're doing good and bad examples, you're not like it always has to be exactly this good example. You're like, you need a little room yeah. to work with there. Yeah, it, it's more kind of talking about the class of mm-hmm. solution. You know, things all move in from this direction. But we're not going to show every single possible component that can come in from this direction. Yeah. Just if in doubt it comes in from the right or, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. I think also, like, your your, your prototypes are mm-hmm. deliverables. They're documentation. Yeah. Um, they are they are kind of harder to arrange into a canonical style guide because they're not as componentizable. But if it's appropriate, put some of those in as well. You yeah, know? you can pull from them to get yeah. the style guide pieces. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Screen grab them or whatever, you know. Yeah, we kind of talked about that a little bit in the choreography episode of the idea yeah. of like things that are objects that are on screen that exist for similar tasks or similar content should move in a similar way. Yeah. So you could kind of document those main categories very easily. And I just realized that I totally forgot part of my answer, but of what to document, of just things like the categories of that animation. like what, And you kind of touched on that too. Like, what are you using it for? Like your example of like, if when things come in, they come in this way. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. we use animation to have things enter and exit the screen. You know, yeah. if you kind of have a short list of these are the things we use animation for, it helps, you know, if, as you're designing new things or making new stuff, you can kind of have that sort of focused, um, that kind of similar aim through things. If like, you know, there's a new page on your site and it's the only one that decides to animate opacity and everything else does like, you know, scale and rotation, that's mm. going to look weird. So if you document yes. like, we decide to use these two properties for these two reasons, um, that mm. kind of gives you some instant like cohesive choreography going on, if, if assuming people follow it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. But it lets you define it there. It becomes more of a kind of reference material in that way, doesn't it? Yeah. And so I've seen style guides that are more referency, and mm-hmm. I've seen style guides that are more frankly salesy oh, true, salesy true. in terms of you know hearts and minds as to why we should do all this sort mm-hmm, of stuff you know mm-hmm. we use motion because it represents a clean and modern brand it's exciting you know all this kind of stuff and you can use that kind of documentation for it yeah but if it's something that you're trying to work across a bigger team just make sure that it's you know, choreographed well and harmonized and everyone's got the same building blocks then you'll want it to be much more specific yeah you know about the opacity values and the scaling timings and all that sort of stuff yeah and I guess that, that kind of makes me think of, you know, there's a couple, well, things like material design and also IBM's Machines in Motion and Salesforce just released a very public one too. It's like some people or some mm. companies are releasing these very publicly. Mm. And I think in part because it's a trendy thing to do right now. I think it's a good trend. I think it's really yeah, helpful to everyone. It's a very web-like trend. I mean, yeah. It's, it, you know, Share it's all this stuff. A, an important key of the, of the web, yeah. But that's not necessarily the audience you need to be making these for. Like, you don't have yeah. to make your style guide or your design guidelines for motion public. Mm. It, and I, I think when you make them public, you kind of, there seems to be more of that salesy talk to it. Not in a bad way of just like, here's mm. why we do it. Here's why it fits with our brand. But also yeah. if you're at a really large company, you kind of need that because there's people reading this that you've never spoken to. So <laughs> That's true. I mean, a, frankly, a lot of it's going to be dictated by NDAs and, mm-hmm. you know, confidentiality and, yes. and, and so on so um 
you know, I think it's a good default to share if you can. I think that has to be a good thing. But, you know, if you can't, so yeah. be it. There's still value in doing it. Exactly. It's just less of a public performance. It's more of an internal performance. If yeah. like not being able to share, if, just because you can't share doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Like you shouldn't be like, right. oh, no style guide for us because we can't make it public because of, you know, all these rules. That's, right. yeah, it's not, that's such a secondary thing. Right. You can still put it on your resume later. You just can't put all the details. <laughs> yeah. You can't share the specifics. That's all. You <laughs> just say you did one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's I think it's a good thing to point out because it seems like so many people, so many companies are sharing them. And I know there's some people who are like, I want to do this, but my company would never let me public like public it because that's that's words. Um, you know, they would <laughs> never let me make this public. Yeah. It's like you should still totally do it. It's that's the smallest piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So question four. Mm. Um, how often, speaking of documentation, should mm. this documentation be updated? Um, well, we just talked about how public or non-public it should be. And, but who's responsible for, for sharing it or responsible for updating it rather? Mm. You know, I think that's, that's kind of the key question mm -hmm. uh, with Star Guys for me. Everyone agrees they're a good idea and not everyone wants to actually do it. Or, you know, I'm also reminded of the Kurt Vonnegut quote of, um, what is it? Everyone wants to build and no one wants to do maintenance. Yes. You know, and it's, there's, everyone wants to be involved in the creation of the first bits of the star guide. Then it gets really tough, just laborious, detailed mm -hmm. work. People kind of drift away from it and then it's done and then no one wants to touch it. Yeah. You should obviously update it as often as you can, mm -hmm. but you have to balance that because every minute that you're spend you're spending updating that is potentially a minute you're not, you know, improving your product. Um, and if you have to choose between the two, it's clearly better to improve your product. Mm -hmm. But you can, of course, improve the product by spending the time to get those fundamentals right and to get that that style guide prepared. So you need to you need to find the balance. Who's responsible for it? Personally, I think design. Your design team is responsible for it. Your designers are responsible for it because although it's a piece of work that cuts across the organization, you know you're going to have. Uh, developers involved, product people involved. You may even have marketers involved, copywriters, you know, talking about what's happening on screen or uh, a new feature launch where motion figures deeply. You might have those people involved as well. But design is still going to be the driving force behind it. Mm -hmm. So I think design has to, you know, be the driving force behind documenting and maintaining that. How you then balance that against all of your other priorities as a designer is, is the big question. And the most, the vast majority of People who are listening aren't, are going to be in companies, I think, that are too small to have dedicated motion design people mm -hmm, on staff, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is is totally understandable. Yeah, yeah, um, that's, that's definitely not not like a, <laughs> oh, that's so terrible for you, which is kind of the reality of how it goes. It's definitely a bit of a luxury to have a full, you know, a full-time motion designer. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful luxury to have, but mm -hmm. um, most people you're going to be doing this yourself. So, yeah, you have to make those, those kind of trade-offs. Don't underestimate the maintenance effort, I think. Yeah, that definitely. That's definitely, I think, the harder part of style guides is keeping yeah. it up and maintaining it. Because like you said, no one really wants to. And it's easy to let it go when you also have to ship something or there's like, you know, um, or even for client stuff when you're like, that's not my project anymore. Like, I don't hmm. even know how you, um, that, those those get a little trickier. I guess it kind of becomes the client's responsibility to update it then. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think... It definitely needs to come from design because, I mean, that seems to be the intention of style guides anyways, is a sort of like mm. way to share these this design thinking and design motivation with everyone else um, or whoever else is implementing it. So it should definitely come from design. But yeah, the balance is, is the tough part of figuring out how you find the time to put into it and keep it 
updated and keep it um, like, I guess, like a living document. Um, I don't have all the answers for that, but <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I know I think it's one hard. thing that helps uh, on that is to have as smaller style guide as makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, you want detail to an extent, but yeah. if you start going too far with detail, then it starts to be out of date more quickly. Yeah. Um, and that means you have to date, update it more frequently and that overhead is, is greater as well. So I much prefer keeping motion guidelines on a slum, somewhat abstract basis mm-hmm. rather than this is how the close button moves in and out because you may in version 1.2, you may get rid of close buttons altogether <laughs> and then suddenly you've got to take all that out as well. Yeah. Keep it more about general motion principles mm-hmm. and you know, types of components and how they interact and so on, rather than tiny, specific kind of minute elements, because then you'll find that, as you say, you, you just don't have any time left yeah. to update it. Or if you do update it, you haven't got any time left to actually improve the product. Yeah, or like worse, you're like, I don't want to update this thing in my in the actual product because I'll have to change my style guide and I'm not doing that. Like, <laughs> and that's just... A, uh, I, I have had that motivation yeah. sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've managed to fight it usually, but uh, yeah. Hey, it's, it's going to come up, right? If you're like, oh no, this is a big part of... The, yeah. This is in the style guide in like 50 places. If I change it here, I'm going to be up late tomorrow, you know, it's, or not tomorrow, but whatever. Like the, you're, you're going to think of those things. It happens. Yeah. We're all lazy by default. Yeah. We don't want to make extra work for ourselves. The point about, um, you know, design uh, being in charge of this, again, that depends slightly on the format and the intent mm. of the style guide. I've seen style guides that are um, just as much developer tools, you know, in terms of code components and snippets. and things Yeah. Like ones, ones that go to like, or almost like a code library in a sense, or a yeah. partly code library. Yeah, exactly. Now, I think the kind of the intention is slightly different between like a design style guide and a code style guide. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot that are combined, but a design style guide you can only do at the end of all the design work, I think, basically. I don't think designers can really work in terms of designing the specific components and then putting everything together to hope it makes a page. Whereas developers have much more of a kind of componentized progressive enhancement sort of approach that they mm-hmm. can use where they can do those and combine but design you have to go with a big thing and then decompose it yeah or at least uh, look at both pieces of it you can't be all yeah um, exactly. you know like micro pieces yeah. of things without looking at the macro level ever right exactly like if you're you know if you're an architect you can't start by designing a door and then you know, <laughs> fit a house around it you've got to you know sketch out the, the outline of the house and you know, the plan and, and so on um so if you if you have that kind of thing um, you know, designers are always going to be retrofitting. They're mm-hmm. always going to be doing new master files or sketches or whatever it is, and then from their complete work, filling in a style guide. Yeah. Whereas developers can make tweaks to the CSS on the you know the markup or whatever it is in their components that then may trickle forward into the product. So there's kind of a different direction. It's always going to be a bit more. It's almost kind of more busy work for designers because, like, well, the real work is done. Now this is just documentation, mm-hmm. whereas a more developer-leaning style guide can be more closely related to some of the components you actually put in the product. So that may skew how you separate those responsibilities as well. Yeah, yeah. It kind of comes down to the to the audience again, like you said. And Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's documentation, but it's, it's definitely – it's valuable documentation. But you have to balance how what value you get out of it by the amount of work you put into it. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to be turning in tons of work, and then you're like, "And this provides a tiny bit of value." Yep. Very fun. Yep. Exactly that. Uh, so those are our those are our four questions. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have any other questions, if you're if you're listening, um, by all means, throw us you know throw us a DM or something, or a, or a message on Twitter mm-hmm. or uh, something like that. And we'd be glad to try and uh, you know answer those uh, at some point if we can. Um, let's move on to our our 
what we're reading section, I value you've got quite a lot on this list here. So over to you. <laughs> yeah, it looks like I've been reading a lot because in, in contrast. Um, so one of the first ones uh, I was reading is Tooling Up. It's on Google Design. And we were talking about Pixate, was it two episodes ago? Mm, yeah, two. Um, and this article, Tooling Up, is, is kind of essentially just an interview with some of the folks, or I guess one of the folks from Pixate, um, mm. about what kind of hinting at what Google might do with all this and why they wanted it to begin with. Um, and it has some nice illustrations. So it's, an, it's a good read to give you an idea of where this might be going and just kind of an interesting take on what Google is doing with these tools and how they might change. Mm. Um, that was, uh, it was uh, an interview format, wasn't it? With, yeah. with Pix, uh, one of the Pixate folks, one of the form folks, and then Matthias Duarte, who's the VP of design at Google. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's got uh, Paul Colton, I think, from Pixate. I'm just looking at it now. Okay. And then... Um, Max Weissel, maybe, is my, okay. um, from Form. So yeah, those those two tools and mm. uh, and the VP of Design at Google. So yeah, it's uh, um, yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting read. Um, so another one was the uh, Medium article, of course, because that's all the internet is these days. <laughs> um, it's Motion Interface Design, a Continuity and Expectation. Um, and there's some interesting breakdowns of how continuity works well in like the Apple home screen and how it falls apart and, and some interesting points on choreography and just that kind of um, a lot of that like spatial orientation of like once you start moving things in a certain way and you've established this kind of, I guess, rule set for about lack of a better word, how it gets weird when you break that and um, it's a lot of it's like the super tiny details that maybe only people like us that obsess over the motion would notice. Mm -hmm. But I think on a higher level, it does get noticed by just your average user, just maybe not mm -hmm. in that detail. They might not be like... Subconsciously. Yeah, they're not like, oh, mm. that's confusing because that faded in and nothing else did an opacity fade ever. They're just like, huh. You know, and it's a little, little yeah. extra stumbling thing. So there's, there's a lot of detail. If you like those kind of geeky details, there's a lot of that in there. Um, that sounds good. And, and a lot of animated GIFs. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, means it's going to be good anyways. Um, and then one last one I was reading was actually a motion motionographer this morning. Um, kind of completely unrelated to UI animation, but I found it really interesting. It, it was It's an interview as well with, um, uh, let me find his name, Adam Plouf, I think is how you might say that, Adam Plouf. And he's talking about various like code-based tools that traditional animators are kind of building themselves to make things like you know, um, what is it, the inverse kin kinematics when like arms and legs move and stuff like that. Hmm. And it's just interesting to see the kind of tools that um, he's built and the kind of tools he uses to do like walk cycles and arms and stuff. Even though it's nothing we would use in interfaces, it's just, there's an interesting parallel there. It's like, well, we have some code-based code tools that we use to do the stuff we hmm. want to do. Um, so I found it to be an interesting read and there's some really cool animated GIFs in there too. <laughs> that's the only reason I nice. read the internet. If you've animated GIFs, I'll read your article. Right. Yeah, so Sounds that's good. That's my, my, my reading list for this time around. Okay. And you're putting me to shame because I have uh, essentially nothing on my list. I, I read, <laughs> I read uh, a decent amount of that, uh, that Google article, um, but I've been traveling. That's my excuse. So yeah. I haven't read anything. So I'll be sure to book up um, for, for next episode. So I've got some impressive things to share. Yeah, so. it's hard to fit in internet reading when you're on a plane for like hours and hours. It's totally understandable. <laughs> That's that's very true. I mean, I have all these articles in pocket, but I just it was the last thing I wanted to do on these ridiculously long flights. So, um, sorry, sorry, listeners, but I'll, 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 I'll book up as I say for the next episode. Yeah, next time it's going to be all you. I'm not reading anything for the next week. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a challenge. Okay, so in that in that next episode, um, we're going to talk about mm -hmm. um, 
kind of design problems that motion can answer. So almost sort of like a cookbook or sort of a reference thing. So if you have problem X, then try motion answer Y, um, yeah. if that makes sense. Hopefully it will by the time we actually uh, you know, <laughs> share that episode with you. Of course, uh, it makes just, complete sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to give you some you know, specific tactics that you can try and use, uh, you know, if you have certain challenges, just to give you a bit of a kickstart to, to, um, you know, to, to put some useful motion uh, to use. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think that's it for, for episode nine. Um, so we hope you can tune in for the next time. You've been listening to episode 9 of Motion and Meaning with Val Head and Kenneth Bowles. You can find out more about the show at motionandmeaning.io. And we'd love to hear your feedback on Twitter as well. We're at Motion Meaning there. We're also now in iTunes. So if you're enjoying the show, please give us a rating or a review in iTunes so that more people can find out about Motion and Meaning. See you again soon.